The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. In 2014, two friends saw a gap in boarding schools for an app that could help track student absences and built out that idea into a business that today is in about 300 schools in 21 countries. The company, now known as Aura, has completed a recent capital raise to take their Kiwi tech to the world with a bigger mission to help provide a solution for student wellbeing and engagement. To talk distributed work, helping schools run better, and the journey so far, co-CEOs Kurt Meyer and Paul Organ join us now. Tina Koroa, thank you for being here. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for having us. Hey, so Kurt, you're over in Japan and Paul, you're in here. Um, t- tell us about how you two got started. Like, how did you connect through study? I think, uh, well, it was at architecture school in Auckland, at Auckland University. Um, and I think it was probably over, I remember a, a lot of beers in those days. Um, and that's how we kind of first connected. And then... Um, and then we kind of went through school and um, both of us started to really get into software and technology as to how that could help architecture. And then we, in our last year, we got given a research scholarship um, to move into um, our master's and, uh, well, actually, sorry, for the summer scholarship. And then we basically, I mean, we had different, I think, takeaways to what that meant to us. But for me, I, I remember thinking, well, we just basically, I remember spending maybe 30 to 50 hours on that um, project and they were being like quite amazed by the outcome and I think I remember it was just so different to what everything else was that we were working on that I just felt like there was a lot more opportunity in that in the world of technology um, so that was kind of my takeaway from when Kurt will have his own and then we both kind of um, decided that it was a good idea to, to leave we actually got recommended by a tutor as well to leave um, he said to either <laughs> go to I remember he very vividly said to go to the AA which is in London um, or leave and do your own thing. And I looked at the AA costs, and that was like, I think it was like fifty thousand pounds a year or something, if I remember correctly, Kurt. And both of us, I mean, I don't know if we had that conversation, but I remember thinking, I don't know where in, where on earth I'm going to get that sort of money. So, yeah, as Paul said, uh, we're interested in software and how we could apply that to the the design process. So we were able to get some exposure to coding. And yeah, the project we were working on was kind of like a search engine for real estate, which was, yeah, it was interesting. And that's why our tutor said, you know, this could be something you guys should maybe give it a go. And that really excited us. So that gave us, I suppose, the push to drop out. (laughs) Yeah. But you're pretty deep into it, hey? So right at the end of your architecture degree before looking at like, um, you know, next steps in there. Mm. Like, was it a big call to, you know, you found that you loved, yeah. like, software development, but was it a big call yeah. to step out of architecture <laughs> I, at that moment? Yeah, I think a lot of people have asked me this and um, said, oh, you took the risk and all that sort of stuff. But I remember very, this is like a, uh, this is like maybe where one of those moments where I realized I did think a little differently because I remember thinking, if I stay doing this, this is a big risk. 
if I stay doing architecture. Whereas to me, I was like, if I don't leave, I'm risking that world behind and, and doing what truly excited me behind. And so it did. I definitely thought that staying with the current path was a bigger risk to. So I, so leaving the only risk or the only risk that was to me is I knew I was going to get an airfall from my mum. That was about it. <laughs> um, and I did. But luckily they'd moved to Australia and so I told her over, over Skype back then when we all used Skype. <laughs> and I told her and then I remember quickly like, oh, oh, and they hung up. I <laughs> <And then laughs> oh, got a bad line, yeah, mum. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, no, I, I, it, it, yeah, again, people ask that today, they're like, that's quite a big risk or quite a big thing to do. But I, I thought I saw it the opposite way, yeah. And why is that? Like, was was architecture kind of, you, you know, limited opportunity compared to software? Or yeah, um, I think it's a it's a good career. But at the time, you know, it was just a couple of years out of the G- GFC. By the time we graduated, mm. and we had a, um, it was right at the end of our bachelor's. Actually, they they gave us a sort of presentation of what the career prospects look like in architecture. And oh, I remember that. Yeah, oh, go for it. That was when the shoe fell for me. It was like a, yeah. um, uh, a lecture almost about, you know, what to expect. Mm. And it was something like 30K out of the gate as a graduate with a master's degree. Um, yeah, that's right. And to become an architect, you actually have to get registered as well. And there's a whole process out of that. So you're looking at like eight years before you're considered an architect. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> at the time we were thinking – Oh, gee, I wish they did this presentation on the first day instead of last day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah there's that. Have you guys seen that um, that story about Jordan Balfour walks into dentistry school, and they're like, "The golden days of dentistry are over. If you're trying to make money, you should leave." And Jordan Balfour like left that day. <laughs> that sounds like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But it was actually a good time for like all of our friends who stayed in architecture because you know, um, over the last ten years, it's been a good industry to be in. Um, yeah, but true. Paul and I just didn't see it that way, so that's mm. why we thought staying at architecture would be more of a risk than leaving. Yeah, awesome. and just to give some more context as well for, for the thinking at the time, is that um, both of us didn't, we were living together by this, at this time, by the way, um, but we both didn't come from any sort of money or financial backgrounds or anything like that, so for me at least it was a very big push to like be able to provide for my family and things like that. So when I, like Kurt said, when we were hearing those kinds of numbers, I was like, wait, they can't buy a house. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was kind of going through my mind a lot, yeah. And jumping out then into software entrepreneurship, did you have like a clear path to go? Because well, I, I, was it that Aura wasn't, or boarding where as it was, it wasn't your first kind of um, mm. <laughs> yeah. idea out of the gate, hey? Mm, true. Yeah, I think uh, we started out, we we did that, 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 um, that project around um, search for real estate, which actually is exactly what is it? Real estate dot Kurt, or is it? Um, it's one of those. The current ones, oh, homes I think it's exactly what we were mm. building. Basically, we just had no idea. Like now, you look at their story; they had to raise all this capital and stuff. We had, I had no idea about raising capital, venture capital, any of that sort of stuff. So I, I think both for Kurt and I we were like, how does this ever become a a revenue generating business? Um, and then we actually did some stuff for the Cook Islands government. Kurt, is that what, was it the government? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we did some stuff there. It was a fun project, but it was just like, again, it was kind of, we were being, um, I guess we were going to be contractors to them. And how did you land on the idea for what became Boardingware? Kurt was a boarder at uh, Mount Albert Grammar. I was, uh, I went to Auckland Grammar in my last few years to play basketball, and the basketball manager or coach was the head of boarding. Um, but Kurt had the memory of, hey, pen and paper is 
um, runs boarding school. Like that's kind of um, what, I, what what he remembered is everything, as far as I can recall. And mm-hmm. um, we went back and interviewed our um, heads of boarding, and then they told us the same pains that they were experiencing um, independently. And so we kind of kind of talked to more and more boarding schools, and then um, yeah, the pain just kind of kept you know um, kept coming up. Um, and so we decided to build a, a solution. And, and um, again, the, Kurt might have a different uh, opinion here, but for me, the designing of software and like the the experience still felt a lot like architecture because we were, you know, designing essentially their experience, their whole like how they're going to feel feel and use the product. That's still so it was still really exciting from that perspective for me as well. So I was kind of at the time agnostic as to what the industry was, um, apart from the fact could we make a business out of it. Um, so yeah, is that how you kind of remember it as well, Kurt? Yeah, uh, so after our first attempts to do the um, search, real estate search engine, we realized, well, because we had just dropped out, we needed some way of staying alive. So we, <laughs> we, we, we realized that we needed a, you know, something that was going to generate money quick. Um, and that just didn't, like, we just didn't have any idea how that mm. was going to work with what we're currently doing. Mm. Um, well, it's actually one of Paul's friends um, became sort of a mentor to us, not oh, yeah. far from where we were, we were staying. And he he had his own SaaS company, and he followed a specific process around finding like a painful problem and pre-selling and things like that. So we pretty much adopted that approach. Thought about different uh, niches and mm. markets that we could look into real estate, you know, insurance. We just had a few ideas and one of those ideas was boarding school. We were pretty agnostic in mm. terms of whether or not to get excited about it. And but we just went through the process, talked to people, said, you know, what what are the pains? What would a solution look like? If we mm. built it, would you buy it? And it, it was just literally my my old head of boarding and Paul Paul's head of boarding that he has already mentioned that we went to talk to initially and yeah, it was positive feedback and that was enough for us to yeah, reach out to more schools and get more feedback. And yeah, yeah. We started to learn that it was, it was something that people really needed. Mm. Yeah, t- tell me about that process because um, mm. there's that great story about you showing a PDF to someone yeah. and then wanting to buy it. Is that right? Like, so what, yeah. were, what were you doing with the PDF and what was that? Oh, yeah. We had a few schools at that point had said, like, this is the pain. Um, and we, Kurt and I, didn't code probably well enough to build, like, a, um, a native application for, a, for an iPad or something like that. And so we built a prototype. Um, again, this was kind of um, some help from our, our, yeah, our friend that kind of, exp- um, sorry, he showed us, like, a piece of software we could use that you built it through PowerPoint, essentially. And <laughs> when you're on your phone, it just looks like it's, like, working like an app. And so we took that kind of into, I think it was Mags, right, Kurt? Um, mm-hmm. And we showed him, um, and he was like, great, I'll, I'll start using it today. Like, how much do you need? Um, and he actually wrote us a check. He wrote us a check or typed out a check, um, and we had that for a long time. I still can't, I, I can't find it, but we, <laughs> we had no business yeah. to bank it into. So we, we, I think we put it into Kurt's bank account to begin with. Was that his one or the one down there? No. Um, no, we held on to it until we got a, a bank account, account Yeah, for yeah, like... Yeah. More than six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and another part of that story was that we were, <clears throat> um, we were like, okay, we'll just get on the phone and start calling every school. And one of them was down in Wanganui. Mm. And I remember it was like my very first cold call. And by the end of it, he was just like, great, 
cool, where's your, what's your bank account? I'll, and I hadn't shown him the product or anything, and I was just like, I remember looking at Kurt, and I was like, this is going to be so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, man. But, yeah, that was, it turned out to be the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did you go about turn, turning it from a PDF into a product? Basically just approached a friend um, who also went to the same boarding school that I went to, and he was studying software engineering at the time, and we just approached him and said, yeah, we've got this idea. Do you want to help us build it? And he was keen. So that's how we got our first um, yeah. developer on the team. And I think we took a few shortcuts initially uh, when we f- first developed it. So used a lot of out-of-the-box solutions like for our infrastructure and you know, we bought a template for our um, front end. So sort of compensating for the technical skills that our developer didn't currently have, but that ended up costing us more down the line when we had to rebuild everything. But it was a really quick way to get something up and running. Um, we started with the iPad app. We weren't even on the app store. We had to send the um, ICO file yeah. to like our customers to install, which was... Yeah, we didn't even have an online database at first. Like we had separate ICO files with their students loaded <laughs> onto the app. So it was very, very, uh, yeah, messy, yeah. but it, it worked and, you know, people were happy to use it. Yeah. And they're happy to go through the pain of updating things. So yeah, I, th- I think that shows that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, full blown working, working, mm. but that was enough for us to, you know, start getting more people to pay for it. And um, yeah, eventually we built the back end and everything else that was needed. Yeah. And what what did it do in the early days? Like what was the pain that you were solving for boarding schools? Mm. Yeah. The big one was around leave. So like every time a student has to leave boarding school or they want to leave boarding school, they have got to get permissions, approvals. It's got to be noted somewhere. Um, and so having that kind of streamlined through an app um, meant that there was obviously a recording of it, but it also meant that it could get the permissions and things like that faster than if they were calling or emailing parents and things. Um, and so it was actually a pretty simple um, thing, but it was super painful for them. And so that's where, again, like in hindsight, we've learned quite a lot from that because it's like, you know, can we find more pain points like that within a school that they really, you know, don't have anything to solve it with because um, they were they were willing to solve it with basically an iPad app that scrolled. That was a, as far as I can remember it. It just had first name, mm-hmm. last name. Like I don't even think we could upload profile photos for the students in the first one. So it just had that little like you know avatar you know thing on each student, and they were just using that. They were like happy to use that instead of a um, clipboard or yeah or yeah. So that's all it did from memory. Yeah, yeah I don't even think we had a student app um, in the beginning or parent app. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty pretty rudimentary, and they're paying for it. So mm. yeah, yeah, and global interest from really early on. Yeah, how did how did that go come about? I remember we had uh, we used something called Mailchimp, which was like a yeah, you guys probably know what Mailchimp is, and we used that to like blast out emails to um, schools. But we also had interest, I think, because we had it up online, and we had some relatively kind of uh, topical uh, copy used, and so people that were in boarding schools because it's such a small niche. Whenever they were searching for stuff, we we're probably the only website that showed up for a while. So I remember we'd look on um, Google Analytics and see like people in America looking at it, and and then so, and then we started to get a couple of leads from there. So um, yeah, that was great, and that was also that taught us about business in America. Particularly, I remember we um, there was uh, one that Kurt dealt with and one that I dealt with, but the one that I spoke to in Texas, we went through a demo. 
Um, and at the end of it, she was like, cool, like do it, like credit card or, you know, she was just kind of like, how do I pay like straight away? And um, that's kind of how the U.S. has been since, yeah, that was a really different mindset between the Kiwis and the, and the U.S., yeah. But they're just ready to pay and get going yeah. straight away, yeah, make a decision real fast. Yeah, they're like, this is great, like, can, we, can we use it now kind of thing, and um, how do I pay? Like, whereas still to this day, I'd say most New Zealand schools, and like we love working with them, but it is funny when we go out, we show them, they're like, this is perfect, everything great. Anyways, I'll get back to you, like, and we're like, oh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> so what's holding us up now? I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so were you able to take the uh, payment from America? Yeah, I don't know how we did that in the end, but we, <laughs> but we did, yeah. And then how did you get into the world of, because you said before that you hadn't had much experience or know that kind of world of VC funding or investment and the like. Mm. How did you go from having, you know, a, a, an app that you'd built, um, found a customer, mm. um, got some revenue coming through, uh, you know, that you'd really kind of, um, you, you know, white, white knuckled it and done mm. it all yourself, bootstrapped it, all of those kind of things. Yeah. How did you go about moving into the world of VC investment with the business? Yeah, that, that- uh, this start, there was a time when um, we were still working from our our lounge, obviously, and um, something came up on Facebook just saying, you know, are you? It was from the Ice House, but I didn't, at the time I had no idea what that was, and it said, um, do you, are you in software? Are you in tech or something like that? Um, we've got a competition coming up. Win and get tickets to Webstock, free flights, accommodation, food, etc. I was like, okay, we might as well, like, what have we got to lose? They said to put a, you know one pager together, and um, I actually thought we had no chance. I was just like, well, if it takes ten minutes, why not try? So we put together, you know, we had five customers. We had Kurt and I and one other, blah blah blah. Gave us background on the company, and then it came back. I think the next day, saying you're in the top ten out of three hundred and eighty or so businesses. <laughs> I mean, mm. Kurt and I had never thought about startups, like VC, like anything like that. So I was like, really? <laughs> I mean, okay, <laughs> so we 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 went down. We did this thing called um, Startup Alley, which they, and then we pitched, and Lance Wiggs happened to be there. Um, he was one of the judges, and we pitched against nine others. Um, at, at the end of it, Lance was like, you know, great stuff, keep doing what you're doing. This is when he was announcing the winners. We came nowhere near the top. And he just said, uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, like, you know, inspirational stuff because you're you know, so focused on building an actual business. And then kind of that was that was about it. And then, um, what was it, six months later or maybe even a year later, Kurt? Uh, Within a year. We, we caught up with him. Yeah, and we just said, oh, we've got this opportunity from elderly care homes in um, in Australia, and we're just wondering how to like, how do we you know decide this? How do we make this decision? And we met up with him. He said, where are you guys at? And I can't remember where we were at exactly, but I think we we're like on the way to a hundred thousand in ARR. Not not close, but I think we were like between fifty and hundred, if I'm not mistaken. And then he goes, um, great. Do you guys want you know do you want two hundred fifty thousand dollars? And we were like. <laughs> I remember Kurt and I were like, "What the hell does it?" I mean, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I think I can give more context to this. I, don't, I, I don't think we can get in trouble. I'm not ashamed of it. We were on the dole when we first started the business, so um, to hear, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars when we could pay, you know, pay ourselves a little bit and our developer properly, that was kind of pretty appealing. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. And then to get like access to, because Lance is great, right? Yeah. Like, you know, um, mm. such a, like, um, such a big figure in the local, um, you, you know, in, investment and VC and tech scene and such a kind of straight shooter and interesting kind of <laughs> yeah. character as well. Like, yeah. you know, what was it like going from not being part of the VC world to having someone like Lance on your team? Well, I still didn't know I was part of the VC world when, <laughs> when Lance invested. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. I still, I mean, I was like, I was like, okay, this is venture capital. I get it. But, um, yeah, I didn't know he was so entrenched in the scene and all that sort of stuff. I had no idea. Um, but we, we actually used that money, jumped on a plane, and we went to the States. And um, I think we closed quite a few customers really quickly. Um, and so about six months later, he 
like, I don't know if he tripled the valuation or something, Kurt, or doubled it. I can't remember. And then gave us another 500 grand. So we're just kind of like, oh, this is, this is crazy. Um, but that was within yeah. the first year. Yeah. So, so what do you, you got a check from him and then went, oh, well, I'll just go get some more customers. That is actually genuinely a crazy story. Like, <laughs> um, I, I went and I've, I've, um, cause Kurt, you know, there's so much product work to do. Kurt stayed here. I carried on with sales and marketing. Um, and we we're like, okay, let's just get on a, pl- I went on a plane. I flew my friend over from, okay, this is a more embarrassing story. I didn't have my driver's license. So <laughs> I had to fly my friend over from Ireland because I was like, well, that's a short flight. He flew over. He drove me everywhere. And we went to like 20 states in 30 days, and I had, I think, 25 meetings in 30 days, um, all up and down the east coast of the US. And um, I remember like like very vividly putting on weight, like I lost I like lost hair, like it was crazy. Um, and my friend, he, I'd wake up at like 2 in the morning, he's slapping his face to try and like <laughs> stay, <driving>. stay awake, because <laughs> he was like, we were like, you know, he's never driven in America. Um, and yeah, still really, I don't know if he ever listens to this, but I'm still really thankful for that, because... I don't know why he did it. Like, that was just nuts. Like, he, yeah. And so we just went all up and down, saw all the schools we could. And then, um, yeah, like a good portion of them were pretty interested to sign up. And again, for, for, for mostly still around that leave, solving that leave problem for, for, for student. Yeah. So you just got, got a, drove up and down the East Coast of the States and came back with a handful of like great customers. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Yeah. And a handful of hair as well. I remember being in the shower and going, like, whoa, uh, I pulled hair out. It was crazy. <laughs> oh. it's a, and I was only like 20. Five or six, yeah. <laughs> and we'll be back in a moment to hear from Gert and Paul how they went around building the business and the change to Aura. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. And welcome back. We're back with Paul Organ and Kurt Meyer, co-CEOs at Aura. So that's a fantastic story that you built up this product with your customers, uh, got this investment, um, jumped over to the States. Uh, how did you go about like growing as both kind of like leaders and people in the company? And, you know, Kurt, you becoming someone able to run the product and Paul, you being someone who could just go out and, um, and, and do that. Like what kind of things did you have to teach yourself and learn along the way? I think fortunately it was baby steps for us because we – grew it from nothing, right? So at first it was just the two of us and then there was three of us and there was another one. So it was a very organic process and the same with the product. It kind of grew organically and 
as it grows, you sort of grow with it. I think that was that was good. It wasn't as if we, you know, were dropped into the deep end. Although we were we were stretched, but I, I felt like it was more like the company grew in accordance to our growth versus the other way around. So mm-hmm. it, it never really felt like we were being stretched by the company. It's more like the more we stretched ourselves personally, the more the company was able yep. to grow. Yep. Um, for me, that came from, well, working with Paul, um, mm. definitely like we're both very different and complementary. So it really mm. makes you aware of your uh, blind spots. Mm. So that's that's been a big part of it, as well as reading a lot of books. Um, I never used to be a big reader, but yeah, when you just feel like there's something you don't know and you just need to figure it out, then um, reading books is a good way to start. Yeah, I'd mirror what Kurt said. I'd say that um, I feel like, it's, I don't know if it's the case for everyone, but a business is like you know, a mirror of yourself. If you kind of improve at the right rate, then your business should, as a result, do the same. And similar to Kurt, just read everything we could, um, and especially on the sales side, because I had literally no experience. I think I, I mean, I worked at Foot Locker when I was 15, but I'd never... I never had any other job, so um, I just jumped into all the sales books I could, and then used that. And then I had, I obviously, I tried to have always tried to find mentors and people around me that could help and tell me where I'm lacking. But yeah, that was probably the main avenue was um, books and videos. Yeah. And how do you go about? Because it's such a cool way to go. Oh, we'll just teach ourselves how to like run a product, <laughs> teach ourselves how to do sales, and yeah. teach ourselves how to grow as leaders. Like, what did you find any particularly useful things um, that became important to you? To be honest, as well. At the time, because it was like a, we were doing cold calling and trying to like get over the whole sales hump. You know, Jordan Belfort for all his flaws, and I don't actually <laughs> agree with pretty much anything he does now. But um, he was a big inspiration because he was just like this random, you know, Brooklyn kid that just decided to jump on the phone. So for me, who had never done it, it was kind of it was a big push for me to get to do that. Yeah, um, but then yeah, Ray, the, yeah, maybe Kurt wants to touch on the Red Dahlia stuff. Yeah, that was more recent. We didn't start. We didn't come across Red Dalio. And I mean, he's not like our only source of inspiration, but I think he's been good to look at for, you know, things like how the economy works, um, how human psychology works. And his, his book principles is like a coded basically a how to for his lessons from life and business broken down into like specific principles for very specific situations. Mm. And that's, that's pretty useful. So you could literally say, Oh, are we looking at hiring a contracting company? And he's got a principle about it and you can, you can go to his book and see what his principle around hiring contractors are. And it's about having shared values and shared expectations of quality. And it's really useful in terms of like specific scenarios um, which I like, and he learned to. I think he productized thinking because he, you know, hedge funds are all about decision making, and you know they've got sixteen hundred people, two thousand people, or whatever, which is just crazy. So to be able to like maintain a consistent way of um, making decisions for that many people, I think that principles book really, to me, highlighted how important it is to get or clarify your thinking and make sure that it's um, externalized. Like he, you know, he wrote it all down. He said that even. When he had made successful um, um, uh, investments, he would look back on and try to remember because he said in the beginning he wasn't logging everything, and then when he got to a certain point, he was like, "I need to get this out of my head," and then like log what was going through his thoughts when he made these successful investments, so that when he hired people, 
it was much easier to say, hey, here's, here's the sheet for how I think, rather than like, I can't control every single conversation you have, but here's the sheet for how I think. I thought that was pretty amazing, yeah. And tell me about being a distributed company, as you're in uh, Japan today, mm. and um, yeah, how does it work out with, um, and, and you've got, you know, customers and clients and uh, things happening all around the world. How do you run your operation to do that? I mean, I think it's worth saying that being remote isn't, it's not necessarily a make or break thing. Like there's, there's more fundamental things that are important to a company and being remote is like a, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just another piece of the puzzle. Like it's, you know, the, the, the risk of being remote is things like, um, you know, team culture and, you know, building relationships and camaraderie. It makes those things harder, but um, just because you are in person doesn't mean those things are automatically solved either. So it's it's important to make sure you get those things right, regardless if you're remote or in person. So get your culture right, you know, treat people right, live by values and try to create a good company. And like whatever you lay on top of that is, yeah, that, that really depends on you. For us, being remote works. I think time zones are important, you know, in Japan, it wasn't intended to be like this, but it's lucky because we have a team in India mm. and a team in New Zealand and I get a bit of both. So that, that helps as well. And other than that, everything's just, yeah, done through Zoom and Slack. And the other thing I'd say is that it, it forces you to focus on what I think are the right things when you're looking at people's performance. We basically don't know if, like what time people start work and when they stop and yeah how long they work. Like we have no idea. So it, it forces you to look at results. So the, the, the only way that we know if someone's doing a good job is if they're doing a good job, like if they're getting results. Um, we also have a really great colleague named Louisa and she helps fill in the gaps that Kurt and I probably don't focus on too much. Like Kurt, because Kurt and I worked in like a lounge for so long um, and didn't really need too much, I guess, moral support. Um, I don't really... I don't really naturally think of that. So, um, yeah, Louisa, who joined us, helps to kind of bring that kind of culture and that kind of um, focus on maintaining that culture, even though we are remote. So that helps a lot. Yeah, Awesome. And what stage is the company at now? Like, what what's the role that you're fulfilling for these schools? Uh, and, yeah, where in the world are you now? Um, we're, we're currently, I, th- I was told the other day, it was by Nick Keystone, that we're in 21 countries. Um, I I don't usually focus on countries just because it doesn't usually matter where they are. Um, and about 300 schools, and we're now working in the student engagement space. So we rebranded to Aura last year, um, and that was from a few years of understanding like what we could be in the long term. And from what we learned with boarding schools, everything outside the classroom is something that schools have historically not tracked very well. So like um, what they participate in, um, how their well-being is, um, you know, what are their interests outside of the classroom, uh, all those kinds of things. It's just a big white space right now. And so we're trying to, yeah, build tools to kind of really focus on that and, and, and nail that segment. And then we think longer term, from this is from the work that we did last year, there's even the opportunity to be like kind of a vertical, vertical market, um, uh, like industry cloud type software. So um, if you look at all this, the, the products in the space at the moment, unfortunately they're all quite um, clunky and... and um, and hard to use and, and consistent, and then they don't talk to each other very well. It's all this stuff. So we think that longer term, if we build great relationships with our customers, you know, do build products, great products for them, make them affordable um, and customizable, then 
um, we can keep building and, and expanding our account um, kind of spend per school as well. Awesome. And so in that kind of well-being of student space, so you started with, you know, tracking leave out of boarding schools mm. and then um, added parent app and student app and <laughs> you've yep. got the school app. And then you, fr- from that, what led you to kind of understand that well-being and tracking all of the other things that were going on in life was a great place to go? We did actually get asked that a few times over the years about it, um, but we didn't, I remember it didn't, like it came up in sales conversations, but I didn't really take too much notice of it because it didn't really seem like that's what we were focused on. But then there was, um, we knew it was a big problem, and especially through COVID, a lot of schools were saying like, you know, we'd love to have something to be able to understand how they're going and all that sort of stuff. And then we basically did the same as when we first started. We built a prototype with much better um, designers now um, and a much better working prototype and showed that through to customers and said, hey, if we were to build something like this, would you um, be interested in helping us design it and also obviously um, pay, paying a subscription for it? And they, we had quite a few people say yes, um, and that was this time last year. Because yep. I guess they've all got a big duty of care. Absolutely. There's nothing there doing that job. Yeah. Sorry, that's 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 the better answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that they currently don't have anything in place. And so, yeah, they, they're trying to solve these problems, yeah. Yeah, and tell me about kind of the values that you two bring to the business as well. As I saw in the awesome thing that Vincent um, Hiringa wrote up um, about you on the Punakaiki Fund um, uh, w- w- website, um, talking about starting to bring some Te Ao Māori views into the business as well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I spoke to Lance about this because, I mean, I'm, I'm Māori um, um, and and Kurt's um, from Rautonga. So we, you know, I've been learning Te Reo Māori in the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, one of the big values that stands out to me is that whole idea of long-term thinking. Um, you know, you're not, you're not inheriting the land from your ancestors, you're borrowing it from your children. That kind of thing is um, something that I, I do actually um, align a lot with. And so, yeah, again, I don't say it's a conscious um, decision every day to use that value, but it just it does seem to be something that um, guides curtainized principles around um, building you know good business for the long term, building a good life for our employees, et cetera. And what would your advice be for people who would be looking to start a business. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like you guys have learned so much along the way and um, didn't come at it from a traditional business approach. Yeah, not at all. Um, <laughs> what would your advice be to people who, um, who who might be thinking about that? I'd say just start small, but yeah. aim, aim big mm. or dream big. Because I think we, we started small, but and it worked. But initially our goals weren't as ambitious as what we later realize what we're actually capable of. And the work is the same, whether you're yeah. aiming big or aiming small, it's the same amount of work. It's going to be hard. So you might as well aim big. Yeah. Um, it's actually, In some ways, it's actually easier to have a bigger ambition because you attract more people, more yeah. access to capital, For sure. more bigger markets to work within. So yeah, that would be my advice. Yeah, I was going to say start small as well. Um, I'd say the exact same thing. And then like, if... If you're starting out, like maybe um, if we were to retroactively do it, I'd say think of like the big industry that you think you could have an impact on and then kind of wind back to like the smallest start you can have. Um, and that's kind of, that's what we did, but not consciously. So a few of my friends that have started businesses, you know, I've got a friend that's got one in the like um, con- um, consents, like the resource planning space. And like he's gone for a very similar, like really painful, small pain point, but I'm always reminding him, like try and think of like, What's the long term here? Like, where could it go? How could it be really big? And I, and because that's how you're going to be able to raise better capital, invite um, better people along, that sort of stuff. Like, I mean, recently we've had some great candidates come through for our jobs from like some of the best companies in New Zealand, 
And I can only imagine it's from the fact that we've got this much more ambitious goal now. Whereas when we used to apply, for, uh, sorry, advertise jobs when we were just boarding wear, people see boarding wear, they go boarding school software. I think most people go, what the hell's that? Kind of like check out. So yeah, that's a, that, if I was to say to my 20 year old self, I'd just be like, yeah, think of something really big and then try to like look back at like what's the smallest place you can start. Um, because then you can, at the very least, you build a business that doesn't make it that big, but you kind of come to, um, you, you nail the small industry. Like we got to, um, with Boardingware, we were quite profitable. And I think if we didn't hi- keep hiring to try and build out um, the future or like try and be a bigger company, I think we could have you know, easily made that a very profitable business. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And as a final thought, what will success be for you two personally and for Aura as a business? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's evolved. Like yeah. we said in the beginning, we're just trying to, you know, get by. But now that everything's stable and, you know, we're growing, we've got a bigger ambition. It's, um, yeah, I think if we could look back and see that we actually made an impact, the education industry, help more students reach their potential, which is what our goal is, then, yeah, that'll be satisfying. Obviously, we, we want to achieve a level of scale that's, you know, global and significant. How big that is, as Paul said, you know, there's just different stages. Like we just get to the next level and the next level. Right now we're focusing on um, private schools, which is about 12 billion TAM globally for like software in general. So a decent chunk of that would be our goal right now. But then there's also public schools after that. And then there's, you know, higher education. So there's, Plenty of room to grow, but yeah, I think in this next phase, we're looking at at least a, I'd say, hundred x yeah growth from where we started as a boarding school product to the opportunity that we have in the um, private school market. Yeah. So that yeah, for me, that's the goals for now. Yeah, I'd I'd say the same, and I think if I was to add the personal elements of it. Um, there's a thing I like to come back to is that ikigai thing, the Japanese. I came across it randomly, but it's, um, you know, if we can build something with purpose, which is what I feel like we're doing, um, and make the right amount of money to help our families and our closest ones and that kind of thing, um, and then enjoy working with the people that we that we work with, I, 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 don't, I don't really know what else you could ask for. Yeah, so that's what I would say. Yeah, love it, man. Hey, thank you so much, you two, for sharing uh, the story today. And yeah, can't wait to see where you take it on the growth journey next. Thank you. Uh, yeah. th- thanks so much for sharing the story. It's Paul Organ and Kurt Meyer. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So thank you to Kurt and Paul, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Teihe Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.